You're listening to Work Tape, episode 69. Welcome back to the Work Tape podcast. It's your boy, Money Mitchell. Got Isaac Groove and Grover as well. What up? And we are continuing our series with the twos, the years ending in two. And now we have reached the 2000s. This is a peak for us. Yes, we are very, very excited about this particular episode just because of how many great records seem to come out in 2002 following the start of the new millennium. So there was a lot of the kind of foundational things in rock, um, the grunge and the harder rock continued over into 2002 in a big way actually, with one of our favorite bands that we've discussed on this podcast, which is Queens of the Stone Age. Now, they put out a great debut just, a, was it a year or two before this, which was Rated R? Rated R came out in 2000. Yeah, Rated R. So, <laughs> yeah, so Josh Homie and, or Josh Homie, excuse me, Josh Homie and uh, company came out with their- Josh, de- kick you in your face, Homie. Yeah, he doesn't like uh, photographers at concerts. Probably not. Uh, <laughs> so- uh, he's their worst nightmare. Take notes as you take pictures. Right, right. But uh, no, so Josh Homme and company put out a great debut in Rated R. So if you haven't listened to that or you've been living under a rock in terms of rock music, uh, go ahead and take a listen to Rated R. But Songs for the Deaf, in my opinion, is maybe even a better album. Um, it has this really cool. And com- I think that's where you and I kind of section off a bit. Well, how how so? Like, why do you believe that Rated R is the superior record over Songs for the Deaf? It's hard because they're both really good albums, but Rated R, um, I do love Red. Don't get me wrong. But aside from the album color, it's pretty simplistic. You know, it's very Aussie. Like when you think about it at the time, everything's being more simplified. So Rated R, I think they perfected their formula. Okay. I mean, what was it? I can't remember the one from 1998. It has Avon on it. Oh, yeah. But um, Rated R, I think, is... It's almost like Rated R and Songs for the Deaf. It's almost like your um, your parachutes to your rush of blood. Ah, okay. It can kind of go either way, but Rated R is my favorite because of its consistency. The production's great. Of course, to my knowledge, Dave Grohl is not on that record, mm-hmm. but the songs are very catchy. It's a good blend of... It's kind of like Nevermind. It's good production. It is almost the band at their best, and it can kind of go either or with another one of their albums. Mm-hmm. And the songs are consistent. I think consistency is really my favorite thing about Rated R. It's a great listen, and the songs are hard hitting, but they're singable. And the riffs are also a little bit kind of weird. You know, it's really they perfected their desert rock stoner sound. Mm-hmm. They perfected it. By rated R at least. I mean, again, Songs for the Deaf is great, but rated definitely is one of their best records at the very least. Right. Well, Songs for the Deaf, I feel like, is really cool, especially in... It's hard to hate. Yes, yes, yeah. That's one of the big singles. I actually like the opener, which is, you think I'm worth a dollar or something. I think that's the name of the song. Um, It's a very long title, but it's... You feel the Dave Grohl influence on that first track? especially with kind of the screamed vocals. Dave um, does tear up that album, though. And very much so. Without Dave, I don't think songs would have been that good. Go figure, right? 
Oh, no. As a matter of fact, I feel like he kind of carried not only just that album, but kind of the band for a long time because he did go on tour with them. This was the band that toured as well. But I mean, the songs for the deaf is cool because it has that kind of like radio concept that you're kind of along for the ride and you're getting these different radio stations in a way, almost the precursor to like Don FM, which is what The Weeknd put out this year, which kind of follows a similar concept of being tuned into this radio station and thus getting a whole bunch of different sounds. I think that actually was you talk about like the whole consistency thing of rated R as opposed to songs for the deaf. But I think songs for the deaf was kind of meant to be a little more varied. You know what I'm saying? Especially with this radio concept of switching between radio stations on a long drive. You know, you get the hardcore screamo type thing. No one knows, I think, is the song you're mentioning with that guitar riff. That's kind of more of like the pop thing. You get some stoner rock. Go With The Flow is off of this album, too, which is a great track also. It's very, like, danceable. Yeah, that's the thing I like about Queens of the Stone Age, actually, and Josh Homme's guitar work and actually just the band in general is I really like how they balance different styles, actually. I mean, they have their style, of course, as you mentioned, kind of the stoner, deserty rock kind of thing. But then they also have some stuff that's extremely danceable. And then they have yeah. some stuff that's uber serious when it needs to be, too. Like Clockwork was an album that came out later. Yeah, which people hold up in extremely high regard for good reason as one of the best rock albums of the 2010s. It really is a great record. It, yeah. I had a tale. Yeah, I like that album a lot. Yeah, yeah, talk about a consistent listen, you know, start to finish. And actually, you hear the influence Queens of the Stone Age had on other bands with songs for the death, especially like Royal Blood. Oh, totally. Royal Blood mixed up that Black Keys with Queens of the Stone Age. Uh huh. Yeah, they, they yeah. mix that together. We can get into that later for sure, but they're definitely one of the definitive, at least the definitive rock bands of the 2010s. Them and 21 Pilots and... Uh, Nothing But Thieves is a good rock band as well of the 2010s. So it's not that rock is dead. It's just not... No, it's evolved. Yeah, it's just not on mainstream billboard right now. Right. So if you look beyond mainstream billboard, you're going to get some great stuff. Oh, wait, 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 wait. So Stooges, you can hear a lot of Stooges influence, you know, with songs for the deaf as well. I mean, if you listen to Queens of the Stone Age, you can hear a tons of of Stooges in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. But, but I mean, name me like a lot of rock bands that the Stooges didn't have an influence on. Like the Stooges and the Kinks, too. Like both of them. But I would say songs for the deaf. I feel like Queens of the Stone Age by like 98. There's a return to form in rock and roll. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty harsh on throwbacks, but mm-hmm. there's a return to form in their 98 and then 2000 and then 2002 records. It's pretty stoogy. Like mm-hmm. it's right there. And it's it's almost like a proto-punk type sound with some stoner elements. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, but I mean it's just a great album all the way around. It's a great rock album. It's one of the best albums of 2002, one of the best albums of the last 20 years for sure. And based off of that, I mean, Josh Homme, despite the fact that he'll put his Doc Martens to concert photographers' faces, um, <laughs> always will have my respect for making this album. So this is the time when Foo Fighters were kind of going through their almost breakup stage. Mm-hmm. And Taylor was pretty ticked at Dave. Uh, rest in peace to Taylor Hawkins, by the way. Yes. Yes. Fantastic drummer. Amazing dad and father. Yes. And just seemed like a great all-around brother. I don't want to get all teary-eyed. I love that guy. but Great songwriter, too, actually. If you look at a lot of the Foo Fighters' best songs or 
not, I don't want to even say best because that's a bit subjective because a lot of, yeah. but I mean, he wrote like learn to fly. He wrote like a lot of, he had a big writing hand in a lot of the. That's a good point. So one by one was really regarded by Foo's fans as one of their worst records mm. um, and kind of a flop. But I'm here to tell you, it's a pretty good album. Probably not songs for the deaf good, but just because Foo Fighters have kind of been known to be one of the greats in rock, One by One is a solid record. It's definitely one of their more like kind of boring. In Your Honor is probably the most watered down, radio friendly Foo Fighters, actually. And I like that record, but it definitely is Foo's at their most vanilla. Mm -hmm. One by One is a precursor to that record. But it's definitely a product of its time. Go figure. And the rhythms kind of like, you know, with Coldplay and Interpol, the strokes and quotes, uh, you can hear them experimenting with more simplistic riffs mm -hmm. in one by one. Like even all my life is just there's so much repetition in that record, but it serves a purpose. And Taylor is at the top of his game, obviously, you know. Have It All is really good, as well as uh, Disenchanted Lullaby. And Times Like These, that one's a big one. Mm -hmm. So yes. that's a good record. And honestly, like since you mentioned Taylor, I mean, I would credit Taylor because that's actually the first album that Taylor, to my knowledge, got the full band. Because I know he played part of the tracks on There Is Nothing Left. But by one by one, to my knowledge, he played all the drums on that one. Mm -hmm. I, you never know, right? You just don't know. Yes. But to my knowledge, yeah, Taylor, he catapults the band in more poppy territory while also still hitting pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I can't really say any more. I mean, he summed it up perfectly with that Foo Fighters record. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's probably one of those Foo Fighters records. Has it gotten more respect as time has gone on? Definitely. Okay. Because mm -hmm. that's kind of how I feel about it. Especially, I think, with some of the records before it that just had like some huge, huge songs on it. And then like kind of this one was, you know, at a weird time for them as a band. Um, and, you know, it was a little like different also, too. You can hear that they were struggling when you listen to the songs. They're really not their strongest songs overall, but it's kind of one of those albums where you'll find some gems. You'll find some pretty, in my opinion, boring Foo Fighters tracks. I mean, some people say, well, they're all boring. Well. Trust me, there are some more boring tracks in this one, but it also has some of their best tracks, too. It's like a weird mix. Yeah, but definitely one of the better albums in the 2000s as well. I almost feel like Songs for the Deaf has higher respect. Probably like more critical acclaim. Maybe. More critical acclaim. Yeah. yeah. One by one, I feel the name to claim with that album is just that it's by Foo Fighters. Mm -hmm. I feel. I mean, it has some of their you know best hits, right? But that's going to happen with almost any album. They're always going to find some singles that are really good, but... I think as an album, it's not their best, mm -hmm. but it really is one of my favorite records of all time. Mm -hmm. Not really Foose records, but Taylor's drumming. I mean, that's really the first time we hear Taylor in his element and kind of doing the whole right when the band was about to break up. And Chris Shivlett also makes his debut in One by One. Oh, and so that it's like the classic Foo Fighters, uh, not trio, but it's just four people. Right. You got Chris, Taylor, Mendel and Grohl. Yeah, right. Kind of the classic four foos. Yeah, the four foos. You know, uh, Pat Smear is gone, you know, and he came back later. But even if it's not their best album, I think that's like a golden era for Foo Fighters. Right. That's the Otzi Foo Fighters. That's like, you know, Stadium, Wembley. I think Pat played in Wembley. I can't remember now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they did. 
Oh, we should totally go into um because I think it's good. We're staying on the rock. We need to touch on Interpol and Coldplay. Yes. Yes. I think you're probably going to take more of the Interpol just because I'm not as well-versed in the Interpol section, but I know we can both dive in pretty heavily to, as we mentioned before, Rush of Blood. Okay. Which is, as we've described numerous times within conversations that we've had outside of this podcast, the definitive Coldplay sound. Because... While Parachutes in 2000 was an amazing album, and many Coldplay fans are still going to stand by Parachutes as the best album and as their favorite, I do agree that with Rush of Blood, they really did solidify themselves more as the Coldplay that we all know and love, especially with just bigger, more grand production. I mean, just right out of the gate with like Politic, it sets a different tone, like just coming out with that one. It's a different tone where you have some really like kind of heavy hitting production work in the beginning, followed by chill, subtle verses. And of course, you know, it's Chris and the keys at that point with some strings as well. I feel like actually this is where they got more like orchestral too. And this is where they totally were like, hey, we need to sound like Radiohead. Everyone will like us. And they were right. <laughs> Yeah, of course. There's definitely some, <laughs> there's definitely Radiohead influence. I mean, there was Radiohead influence before. No, too. but not as strong as that one. Like you mentioned Buckley. Yeah, Jeff totally Buckley. Totally Buckley. And yeah, it's it's a little bit more, I don't know, down to earth. But I feel like Russia Blood is kind of like, all right, we're really taking the songwriting game to the next level. I mean, God put a smile upon your face. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. come on. That song, it's equally good, but also it still sounds kind of like not common. Like you don't hear sounds like that as common. Yeah. And, and, and overall, that's just a really well-crafted song. Like pretty much a lot of the songs on here are, in my opinion, Whisper is probably one of the weaker tracks. It's so good though. Yeah. I don't want to say that there's anything that's like definitively bad. No, like, no, 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 no. Like, absolutely not. And Amsterdam is one of the greatest outros to an album. Amsterdam is literally. Amsterdam is really good. That's actually my favorite Coldplay track. Really? Yeah. Wow. I know. That is very surprising. That's a hot take. That is a hot take. No, <laughs> Amsterdam is my absolute favorite. I actually made like a mm -hmm. 20 list. So it's like my 20 favorite artists and yes. then my favorite song by those artists. And Amsterdam is your Amsterdam's favorite. Amsterdam's on that. It's not right even on. Clocks. It's not even God Put a Smile on Your Face. Mm -hmm. um, it's not even Daylight. And I love that track. Yeah, Daylight's great. Green Eyes. Green. Oh, I love Green Eyes. Green Eyes yeah. is, it's really interesting because with Green Eyes, especially in a live setting, they didn't really play some of these songs in a live setting for a long time, but then they've kind of reintroduced them, especially Green Eyes. They do that actually a lot for their acoustic sets. Has a country twang to that song. Yes. That's another reason why I like that song, because it kind of highlights the best elements of country music. Yeah, but still also kind of keeping the... But it's not lame. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it also kind of keeps like the Britpop aesthetic yeah. too, for yeah, sure. Totally. I meant more like theoretically oh, rather course. than not even accent at all, but definitely yeah. the instrumentation is essentially country rock. Well, I mean, you could definitely do a country like version of that song and it would sound pretty similar. It, it would fit in. It would fit right yeah. in. Actually, what's really interesting about a lot of the songs on this album and actually just Coldplay in general is they really work a lot with tunings, too, in terms of just very odd tunings. Is it C sharp open for God to put a smile or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, they're not quite as out there with the tunings as like the Goo Goo Dolls is where John Resnick has to have like God knows how many guitars on stage 
at a given time that are tuned to just these like super bizarre, like weird tunings that are known to break guitar strings. But yeah. So God put a smile is a little bit like. It's just a shot away. It's just a shot away. Oh, it's like, give me shelter. It's, it's yeah. Give me shelter. Yeah. So which I, is used in every Scorsese movie ever. Right. But the tuning is basically just like that. You can just put your finger well, on the. Well, I mean, actually, just the tone of it's that. It's similar. The tone of that song, too, is very like, yeah, give me shelter. But yeah, of course, with Rush of Blood, like this is also as if Coldplay was not commercial before with Yellow. They brought it up um, a notch. It got a lot more commercial, especially with Clocks, because Clocks was used in tons of films, tons of commercials. Basically, that song was everywhere. And rightfully so. It is a great piano lick. It's an earworm. It's like Teen Spirit, where it's repetitive. It's a long song. I actually yes. never, ever hear a cut version of Teen Spirit. And I've listened to some cut versions, but they typically keep the five-minute, one-second version of Teen Spirit. Yes. But they will edit Clocks. Right. They'll take out that bridge. Yeah, yeah, right. And I'm like, that's just, that's discrimination. No, that's horrible. Because that's the, messed up. No, that's horrible because the bridge needs respect on that too. I mean, I get why they did it because, <sighs> I, I mean, I kind of get why they did it, but, you know, just because it's not like anything really that's, I mean, it, it is some different stuff musically, but like. So you think that they didn't cut Teen Spirit because it was more essential to the song, even though that song's highly repetitive? I think so. And I think also just in terms of Nirvana itself, like they might get more preferential treatment in terms of uh, yeah. in terms of radio play because of just the significance of, you know, never mind. But not to say that Rush of Blood was very significant in the fact right, that right. actually so many modern rock bands ripped off Coldplay for sure. And you can hear it. Dude, as I said, Coldplay is cool, but any band that rips off Coldplay, I, I find very bland. Yeah, yeah such as? Mm, uh, wow. Put on spot. And I mean, you did ask me. Yeah, yeah, it's bound to happen. I don't like the Coldplay elements found in Imagine Dragons. Oh, no. Yeah, no, I do not like it. There are quite a few other bands. A lot of these bands, though, I got to be honest, were kind of nameless. Like they're not really well known and it kind of didn't get that big. Right. But a lot of like Medic. Medic is pretty good. I mean, they're more okay. of a Christian outfit. Yeah. Market themselves. Right. But um, a lot of these bands just whenever they're like, oh, our influences are Coldplay and Killers. I'm like, OK, I already know you're going to suck. <laughs> right. I mean, it's crazy because, you know, those are two of my favorite artists. Yeah. And I mean, if you're going to take anything from modern rock bands, those are good rock bands to like rip off. Right. So, so to speak, they're safe and they're easy to rip off. But typically people rip off the most mundane and boring parts of those artists. That's very true. They don't take their really interesting songs. No one rips off. God put a smile upon your face. They always got to rip off something like um, Scientist. So, yes. Or Fix You. Mm. I'm like, oh, I want to throw up because I'm like, dude, what? I mean, they're great songs. Yeah, I've heard some bands even rip off like In Your Place. Like, oh, In My Place is actually a great track. In My Place is a fantastic oh, track. So good. That's really, really good. No, I agree with you in terms of like the Imagine Dragons Coldplay thing, like especially on what's the track? Uh, Demons. Yeah, Demons yeah. kind of has a Coldplay aesthetic. Bad Liar, too, has like kind of a Coldplay buildup. And actually, it's weird because Imagine Dragons to me kind of sounds like if you put kind of some mundane elements of Coldplay and you put some mundane elements of the Foo Fighters. Okay. And because of that harder vocal, because of right. that more like screamy kind of vocal that Dan Reynolds likes to do. Right. Um, but then Imagine Dragons also kind of has like this hip hop thing, too. Uh, 
Imagine Dragons had such a great debut record. They did have a great debut. That like nothing else really. Oh, the other band that I was thinking of, One Republic kind of ripped off Coldplay. Oh, totally. Quite a bit. To the point where it's kind of like, eh, kind of boring. Well, because One Republic kind of did this weird thing where they did the orchestration of Coldplay but then like the poppiness of like Maroon 5, which is <laughs> which is Maroon 5 is like a cold play because they kind of perfected a simplicity. Yes. So you don't want to rip off a band that has perfected simplicity. This, this is just my opinion. Now, you 2 got ripped off by Radiohead, but Radiohead used it in a more unique and more like complex way, whereas Coldplay kind of just took U2 face value. And not even like War or Boy, but more like their Joshua Tree aesthetic. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And not even Unforgettable Fire. but No, no. Very much like Joshua Tree, Octung Baby. Uh, like, kind of like, like eh, yeah. it's okay. So Coldplay is almost the last band I can tolerate. Yeah. Uh, utilizing the U2 aesthetic. But a lot of other bands that touch U2, I'm like, this is garbage. And it's funny that we also mentioned Maru 5 because they put out... <laughs> Arguably their best record in this year. That's which, a great album. Which we'll talk about in just a minute. So let's do Interpol because it's yeah, more you, relevant. You got to cover Interpol. You okay, do so it. turn on the bright lights. We'll dedicate a whole series to that. I mean, turn on the bright lights. I mean, you listened to that record, right? At least once? Yes. Yes. It takes you on this crazy journey of, again, it's more U2-esque in the beginning, and then it turns into television. Say hello to the angels. You can almost hear a bit of a Smith vibe, kind of like... um. This Charming Man. Oh, yes. Or like Last Night by The Strokes. It has that same backbeat. Okay. And that's in Say Hello. And that whole album is just like Rush of Blood. And again, you know, One by One does this. Songs for the Deaf does this. Again, it's a product of its time. But it's just yet another band utilizing simplicity in a beautiful way. I think that's why the early aughts, like 2002, was such a unique year for music because rock at this point was really getting more simplified. We don't have a lot of shredders. We don't really have a lot of people noodling around an instrument. It's almost like we only keep what's essential and we get rid of everything because Nirvana set the stage with Teen Spirit by at the least like maybe doing a solo that mimics the verse, right? Mm-hmm. It's not really a solo. It's just mimicking what you're singing. And so when we get to Nirvana, who basically killed hair metal and right. shredding like EVH, <laughs> right. when you get to the yachts, we really don't care about shredding. Even Radiohead, one of the greatest rock bands of all time, especially even technically, they don't shred. Mm. You know, Muse has a capability to shred, but we don't know Muse is a shredding band, even though Matt has the ability to shred. Or uh, Weezer. I mean, Rivers can shred a bit, but mm. even he kind of keeps it cool. And I know Soundgarden and Smashing Pumpkins... They kind of have that aesthetic, but we get to the Coldplay and Foo Fighter and Interpol era, no one's shredding. Mm. And so we just have a good rock song, listen to these songs and enjoy them. That's what I hear when I hear Turn On The Bright Lights. And it's definitely different than Rush Of Blood, One By One and Songs For The Deaf and even 2001's Is This It? Yes. They're different, but Turn On The Bright Lights, first off, it's depressing as heck. It's a different depressing than Rush Of Blood, but that album... I think everyone should listen to that record before they die. It's just simplistic perfection. I mean, we can get into Obstacle 1. We can get into NYC. Carlos Dendler, when he was part of Interpol, that was Interpol's not-so-secret weapon. And his departure from their self-titled in 2010, their fourth studio LP, 
it was really felt after he left um El Pintor in 2014. It was it was good. It was decent. And a lot of Interpol heads kind of see that album as a classic. And I think because of time and aging, it is a classic, but it's really not that great, in my opinion. Even their self-titled was it was good, but like I almost feel like like its high points were way better than El Pintor. El Pintor is more consistent, but Interpol self-titled has much more interesting tracks because their bassist Carlos was kind of out of this world. It's a lot like Flea. Like if you take that one guy out of the band, it is a totally different band. And you know, you know my thoughts on Flea. In fact, if Flea's listening, I think you're actually a really good bassist. So don't, I'm not hating on you, but your fans annoy me. Um, <laughs> yeah, like people overrate Flea all the time, but right. I have to you know give credit to where it's due. You know, like if you take Flea out of the band, it's literally not RCH. R-H-C-P. Always going to be some. It's not, <laughs> it's not RHCP, right? Without Flea. And it's also not Carlos without Interpol. I stand by that to this right. day. Daniel Kessler is a great guitarist. I mean, he's a stylist. He's not so much like a crazy guitarist, but him and then Paul Banks and then Sam Fogarino on drums. I think he's a good drummer, but like Sam Fogarino plays better with Carlos. And to not have Carlos in there, Sam Fogarino's drumming is not enough. Right. You need Carlos in there. So anyway, I stand by that through and through. Yeah. I mean, there you go. Just kind of the breakdown of the Interpol. And then you brought up a whole bunch of By others. the way. Oh, yes. Yes. Speaking of Red Hot Chili Peppers, I as you got into Flea, I'm like, this is the perfect segue into the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Bassists, man. Bassists. Yeah. So by the way, um, not as good of a Red Hot Chili Peppers record as Californication, which came before... Not as good as Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which also came before, but a pretty solid album nevertheless. With, by the way, I think it was kind of carried by the singles a little bit with Can't Stop and Other Side. Those are kind of the songs that really carried the record. I would actually say that with the Chili's that Stadium Arcadium, which came out a few years later, is actually a very underrated album. If you listen to it, it's definitely more on the alternative side of the Chili's, but Oh, rather than just completely funk based. Yeah. Like, by the way, was definitely still the Chili's like in their funk stage. And actually, Other Side kind of had an alternative angle to it. But this is still very much like when they were kind of prioritizing funk as part of their style. But I mean, you really can't go wrong when you have. Yes. Yeah, you can't go wrong when it comes to <laughs> kind of the chemistry, actually. I mean, Anthony Kiedis is. As a vocalist, um, yeah, he's, he's a little hit and miss for me. I think actually there's times when he can be a really good vocalist on stuff like Under the Bridge. Porcelain is a great song off of Californication where you get to see Anthony be a little bit more vulnerable as a vocalist. No, you're right. He's a total hit or miss because when he hits, he hits. When he hits, he's really quite good. But yeah. then there's just times where I'm like, oh, this is just not very good. And some of it comes down to the lyrics. Some of it, I'm just kind of like, I can't get behind this lyrically. But I think with the Chili's, especially in this iteration, which with Californication, Blood Sugar, and this album, and Stadium Arcadium, actually, this is kind of the definitive Chili Peppers lineup because it's Chad Smith, Flea, Kiedis, and John Frusciante. And I think John Frusciante... I think is actually one of the guys who's properly rated, I'd say. I agree. There's a lot of people who actually do recognize how much he contributed to the Chili's. And despite the fact that he's had some, you know, battles with substance abuse, which ultimately has gotten him kicked out of the band a few times, he's just a great guitarist. 
Ott's lead guitarists definitely, again, they don't really shred. No. But some of them are pretty technical. And Oh, um, for Shantae is very technical. Yeah, yeah. And for Shantae is one of the technical ones. But again, because a product of being their time, right? They're yeah. not going to shred up no. and down the neck. But right. the way he utilizes that simplicity and that ability to be very melodic, is mm-hmm. it's perfect. Well, for Shantae is very Hendrix inspired. He is. He borrows a lot from Hendrix. And I guess even a little SRV too at times, which I mean, any like really definitive guitarists, especially the 2000s, and actually John Mayer, too. Oh, yeah. John Mayer is in a different league. But John Mayer definitely goes more into the Stevie Ray Vaughan sound. Totally. Like, Frusciante is definitely the Hendrix kind of sound, like, especially when you hear some of his guitar work on, like, Arcadium. He's more in, like, the Hendrix bag. And then Mayer is kind of in the Stevie Ray Vaughan. I did talk about how I felt like Slash was, like, the last of the classic rock soloists. And I still stand by it, but I didn't mean that there weren't any technical guitarists after him. I'm just saying, if you're going to look at like the greatest guitarists of all time in rock music, right? Because they always mean rock. Sure. Yes. <laughs> they don't tell you that, but that's what they mean. No, they, that's it's very, <laughs> it's very true. They don't talk about some of the great guitarists and in jazz. You R&B, mean that we- you know, you know, <laughs> no, there, there is. There's amazing guitarists in R&B. Isaiah Sharkey, Juju Smith, uh, Spanky Alford. Yeah, they always mean guitar. It's always rock biased, like heavily, no pun intended. But <laughs> with um, John Mayer, no. I mean, if we had a shredder, even some people really hate on John Mayer, even though he's fantastic. He's very good. Um, yeah. I feel like the Ots has no competition. I right. mean, all the really good guitarists of the Ots are just you don't know their names. Pretty much. Yep. And so that's why you can't put them up to Slash because literally no one knows who they are. Right. Because no one really cares about shredding in the aughts. Right. And even the people who are known for kind of shredding more like Mateus. Mateus is Bruno's guitarist, but people just know him as Bruno's guitarist at this point. They don't know him as Mateus. Although if you are a guitar nerd, if you're like a guitarist person, you know who he is. And actually, I mean, in the 2000s, you could say John Petrucci, actually. I like him. Really came into the forefront. Paul Gilbert, too. Steve Vai, also more of the 2000s. So actually, there are shredders. I just think. Oh, no, totally. I think that in terms of popular music, But they don't get the name that Slash or Hendrix get. I'm just saying. No. And that's definitely an old head type thing. It's not really. They don't even get the name that Tom Morello gets, which is. No. Tom Morello kind of continued a good streak with Audio Slave, which I think was kind of forming in the 2000s as well. Or who's the guy from Mars Volta? Who's the. Oh, I don't know. I mean, they're crazy good. Yeah. Oh, well, actually, I think it'd be good for you to talk on a sea change as well as songs. Oh, yes. Yeah. So on the other side of the equation there, yeah, so you have Beck's Sea Change, which is noted as one of the best breakup albums of all time, just because that is the place that this album came from, was more of a breakup state. It's very melancholic. This is kind of where people started to take Beck more seriously as kind of a musical force. And wasn't considering him a loser anymore. Right. You know, that kind of sound. And Beck's always been an extremely creative guy who's willing to push the boundaries in terms of his art form. And that's something that I always respect. He doesn't exactly, you know, play into the mainstream trends all the time. He kind of does his own thing, which is something that I really admire him for. And this album is a, is a good example of that. He has kind of like, you know, it's very melancholic. It's actually kind of a good companion album to something like Parachutes. Oh, no, totally, totally. And that kind of acoustic-driven, melancholic, you're kind of just in-your-feelings type of record. 
you can hear some definitely like uh, the soft rock that's really inspired by the Beatles in there. Oh, very much so. And the other thing, Elliot Smith. Yes. I yes, hear a, Elliot. I hear a lot of Elliot Smith in this, which rightfully so, because Elliot Smith is amazing. And he's one of the most important rift, uh, ripped, well, rift off, but also one of the most important ripped off influences, in my opinion, of the odds. Oh, very much like, so. Like if your music was inspired by Elliot Smith, you know it's going to be good. Yeah. He's like a radio head to me. Right. No, Elliot Smith is just incredible. But we, we, we may have to dedicate an episode just to Elliot we Smith. We will have to. Right. It's got to happen. <laughs> That's an order. It's got to happen. So, <laughs> But Sea Change, like I said, was a sea change for Beck. And like I said, being taken a lot more seriously. And um, in regards to Maroon 5, as we mentioned earlier, the album is songs about Jane. And I'm going to say outright that this is the best Maroon 5 album. End of discussion. You really can't debate this, especially with the cohesiveness of the album. And the singles are unbelievably good. Harder to Breathe, great album opener. This Love, great song. Sunday Morning, classic. And She Will Be Loved, also classic. So there's just so much stuff on here. And the funny thing is about this album in particular is that it was not a hit when it came out. It actually had to really kind of build itself up and get a following kind of just over the course of time. And I love this album. And the thing that kind of somewhat frustrates me when I talk about it is just the fact that for whatever reason, Maroon 5 just hasn't really been able to embody this same spirit since then. I mean, their follow-up album, which is It Won't Be Soon Before Long, was a good follow-up album. It had some good stuff on it, kind of more in a funk dance direction. But this album is just the songwriting. It's lightning in a bottle. Very much so. And I understand that it was like an extremely personal album to Adam, I think, too, because Songs About Jane was literally about his long-term partner. I think it is Adam in his most authentic. Very much so. And I think that's why the album's so good. And I know we have some things to say about like him now, but like all jokes aside, that truly is an artist in their craft. Yeah. Just that vulnerability you can't right you can't rehearse that man right and this was long before he was creeping in dms so <laughs> um so there's a, a a huge a huge departure but um anyway no i but no i love songs about jane and that's why i can't completely rule out maroon 5 and i can't like outright discredit them because they do have this amazing album um under their belt and like i said it's a classic I can't debate it. And so I always have to give some respect. And then actually, I'm going to jump into one more while we have some time here. Justified, Timberlake's album oh, came yeah. out. yeah. No, I did. Yeah, I had that one down. Tim yeah. yeah, Timberlake's like pretty much debut solo album. So this is post sync, post all of the kind of drama that surrounded sync because basically they were getting shafted over hard by their manager. So therefore, it kind of dispersed. But um, this is a really important album, not only for Timberlake as a solo force to be reckoned with, and as probably, you know, Timberlake was kind of like, I guess, the Harry Styles of his day in the sense that he came from, you know, a popular, albeit not like super well-respected boy band, you know, but that was still popular. Isn't that an oxymoron? Right, <laughs> right. Um but you know what I mean? Like, not sorry. No, that was kind of messed up. I'm but sorry. I, I mean, not I mean, not critically like. <laughs> sure, sure. Like, but, you know, both Harry Styles and Timberlake came from boy bands and got a lot of their foundational following and I guess clout in a way 
from being part of boy bands. And then both Justin and Harry have been the most successful members post the boy band, you know, that they came from. Um, but Timberlake with this album, this is a great album. Timbaland production all over this. The Neptunes, the Neptunes production all over this, which we don't have quite the time to really get into the Neptunes production at this point, but we'll have to probably dedicate kind of an episode to that in itself, just with Pharrell and Chad in terms of what they brought to. You need to mention two more, at least. Two more albums? Let Go by Avril Lavigne. Oh, yes. As well as Eminem Show. Yes. Yeah, well, I got, I guess got enough time. But yeah, I mean, Justified, I mean, Cry Me a River, um, Rock Your Body, Senorita, all of them are amazing tracks, classics in their own right. Pharrell coming into his own as a producer with Chad and Timbaland and Scott Storch, actually. People don't talk about Scott Storch on that album. No, they don't. But yeah, just a great listen. And the one that kind of defined JT as the force that he became. But yes, Let Go, Avril Lavigne, bringing in the pop punk to the forefront. There's not really too much I'm going to say about this, just in terms of her being kind of the definitive voice in pop punk for a little while there. I mean, definitely a proto paramour, if you will. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was about to say. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you like took a, the words out of my mouth. A proto Williams, if you will. Yes. When I listen to Haley Williams, I very much hear the Avril Lavigne like yep. influence for sure. Um, and just the influence kind of that she had on a lot of female singers, too, because I would say that, you know, even some of the female singers now that we have are taking influence from Avril, too. Right. And I don't hear any females going, where are you? No, and they're not chasing aliens either, like Tom DeLonge. <laughs> but um, and the Eminem show. Yes, the Eminem show. Once again, I can't really say too much about this. That hasn't been said already. Right. I mean, just. The singles on this and the standout tracks on this are great. I mean, Till I Collapse, Cleaning Out My Closet. I mean, even some of the tracks that were more deep cuts like White America are really interesting. A lot of people would say that this is kind of the last really good Eminem album, considering that he was on a streak from the Slim Shady LP. Of course, the Marshall Mathers LP is regarded as his best album kind of by a landslide. And then, you know, the Eminem show was kind of, this was also in like the 8 Mile era too, because 8 Mile, I think, came out in 01 or 02. So definitely further solidified. Oh, and of course, um, Without Me, of course, is on the Eminem show as well. So once again, it's more of Dre and M kind of at their best. I mean, there's not really a whole lot else I can say about that. I don't think Eminem had really, has really surpassed this period of time creatively that was an end of an era though i think eminem show would you right. say oh yeah because encore didn't quite live up and then he no. did, and then he did the whole relapse recovery which uh recovery wasn't bad and then revival is right is absolutely awful so like infinite and marshall mathers all the way up until like eminem show it's probably like that, that yeah is an era of yeah eminem. i'm glad that you mentioned infinite because infinite, i love infinite because infinite is great that's it's so weird to hear M rap on a boom bap track. It's very it odd. It is, but it's so good. It well, it, it really works. Old. No, it, it really <laughs> works. And even though like hasn't quite like gotten into his personality and his persona yet, like it is kind of very interesting to hear that kind of raw East Coast kind of Nas inspired like mm -hmm. side of things. But yeah, the Eminem show just kind of further solidified Eminem as kind of hip hop supervillain in a big way, just the way that he was able to 
be zany and, you know, kind of express himself, uh, diss Mariah Carey um, on this. So I'll do a few more, dude. I'll do it real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You want to you want to speed round it? Go ahead. Bro, I'll speed I'll speed route it or speed run it. I guess speed actually. run it. Whatever. Speed run right. It, yeah. <laughs> so if it was you by Tegan and Sarah, because I love Tegan and Sarah. I yes. love Sainthood. That's a good record as well as uh, the con. The con's great from 2007. Um, those are kind of more. You know, it's like they're never mine in in utero. You know, people usually know those two. Definitely the con. But if it was you, it's definitely. You've heard that one that goes. Monday, Monday, Monday. Yes. Yeah, that one's pretty good. You know, they have that uh, influence by um, Kate Bush, a little bit of Tori Amos. Yes. Or um, Regina Spector. Definitely Regina Spector. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Tegan and Sarah have always kind of been part of that vein. A lot like, you know, Sleater Kinney. I don't know if you listen to them, but um, One Beat, that also came out in 2002. And so... Oh, I'll give an honorable mention also to Exodus by Andy Hunter. I mean, that's my favorite record of all time. No one listens to it, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot like Darude. Yes. Yeah, it's it's like that. <laughs> it's like Moby. It's a lot like, uh, well, it's not too much like The Prodigy, but it is a bit like Junkie XL. Mm-hmm. And so that one's good, which we need to do a whole like album review on Junkie. Oh, yeah. Another one, which we don't really talk about, but Under Construction by Missy Elliott. I figured that deserved a mention. But for the most part, oh, as well as Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots. I like Flaming Lips a little bit. I mean, Jeff loves Flaming Lips, so that's yeah. more his category. I just know like the really Led Zeppelin cliche. Yes. Yeah. That one's catchy. Yeah. That's very catchy. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's 2002 for you till we come back to 2012. Yes. Krispy Kreme 2012. Yes. So that's going to wrap it up here for the Work Take podcast. And um, like I said, join us next time for when we do cover 2012, the year that uh, we thought the world was actually going to end. Right. And that might be delayed for another year or two. <laughs> but seriously, guys, come to Christ. Uh, just let you know, you guys will regret yeah. it later. Well, yes, but um, actually a lot of great things came out in 2012, actually. Um, mostly the Kendrick record. I got to talk about the Kendrick record. Was that Mad? Was from Good Kid, Mad City, yep. Yeah, Mad. And then uh, Frank Ocean, also with Channel Orange. Frank so. Ocean. There's another one. Oh, Alt-J. Yes. But listen to that and more on the next episode of the Work Tape Podcast. Once again, it's Money Mitchell. We got Isaac Groove and Grover. Let's go with it. Peace out, everybody. Peace. Peace.